Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Poison Pen podcast uh, here at uh, sunny Scottsdale and uh, dark New York. Um, we are really very lucky to help debut and launch Tom Rob Smith's new book, Cold People, right here. Um, many of you probably know Tom from uh, the Child 44 trilogy, which was a huge um, international bestseller, over 2 million copies. You were nominated for the CWA Dagger Award um, for The Farm. And um, let's see here, you've also won several Emmys, including one for American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. And you are currently um, in post-production for a new Hulu show called uh, Class of 09. Um, Tom, welcome. Thank you. That was a very, a very kind, generous introduction. I've actually only won one Emmy. I don't want to like take take it away from me, but yeah, it was just for the assassination of Johnny Versace. So not multiple. That show won multiple Emmys. Other the cast were amazing, um, and the whole team was incredible. But um, yeah, no, it was a great experience. I remember that award show, and I remember watching you win it on uh, television, which was really exciting. Oh wow! I think we. We always root for our novelists who are writing for screenplays. You know, you hope that you guys are the ones who win because, you know, um, you either started with novels or have moved into novels and certainly have a love of novel writing. Well, then I should definitely mention Maureen Orth, who wrote the book Volga Favors that it's based on. She was an, she's an incredible journalist. She worked for Vanity Fair for a long time. And without her book, there would have been absolutely no show she was she did incredible research it was full of these remarkable kind of little insights into people lots of which made it into the into the script so I I stood on her shoulders it's a, you know it's amazing how much um writing is a uh, product of uh, a community versus really a solo act and I well, that's absolutely I couldn't agree more and you know that there's no better example of that than Cold People or Child 44, you know, which couldn't have been written without the uh, the incredible history books and uh, research books that I read. And in fact, the first thing I do when I come up with an idea is go to one of the big bookstores, either in New York or London, and go to the relevant section and just pick out five, six, seven, eight books. And if you really connect with the subject matter, then you you know you you can write it. And that's what I did with Child 44 in London. And in Cold People, I went to the Strand and just bought lots of the books there on Antarctica and found it really interesting. Um, but there was a mix, there's lots of different subjects. And you know, Child 44 obviously was Soviet Russia, but this was both Cold People was both um, Antarctica and also um genetic engineering you know it was like a it was multiple different sections in the bookstore it was the first time actually that's happened I think well part of of writing science fiction obviously is is you have to have a good strong grasp of um uh you know the subject that you're writing about um whether it's theoretical physics or uh or some some sort of grasp of it right or mathematics you really got into living the basically the geological structure of Antarctica um, and cold people. You also really got into how we can survive uh, potentially on um, 
uh, probably the most uh, dangerous place in the world for humans to try to live in. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, what was interesting about um, Antarctica as a, as a location for a story is that in some ways it's been um, fictionalized in quite a narrow sense. Mm -hmm. uh, expeditions uh, tend to be the bulk of both the nonfiction and, um, and the fiction. Um, and it struck me that it's such an incredible location in terms of concepts the fact that there's life in that ice that we don't even know you know what those microbes are that are kind of thousands of meters below the ice and we're, we're not sure what's going to be released if they melt and and the psychological aspects of antarctica as well is really intriguing like how people behave under that kind of pressure of both the darkness and the cold and so it wasn't just about statistics in terms of temperature and wind speed although it is the windiest, coldest place, you know, it's like the most extreme, but the extremities psychologically, and then putting people there and figuring out how they would cope with that complete otherness that was both, you know, wasn't an otherness that was on another planet or far away that you had to try and conceive of. It was one that we knew and had access to. Um, so I found that really interesting. And I also just like speculating about you know how I would react to that kind of extreme cold and darkness and it's really hard to know it's very you know in the opening of the book there's a section about trying to test people that go down to the Antarctica base station to see whether they can cope with the conditions and they come up with you know really rigorous psychological tests but the truth is no one knows until they get there and the people who can seem very balanced in wherever, whichever city or country you're in right now, gets to the Antarctica and completely changes. And it's a little bit like that element in disaster movies where you're never quite sure who the hero will be. And the people who seem heroic in everyday life are actually the people that, you know, run off on their own and heroes rise out of most unexpected places. I think there's a touch of that in Antarctica too. There really is. I mean, it's it is one of those places where you do hear a lot about the fact that people can you can only be there for such a short amount of time because of the isolation, um, and um, as you said, the the darkness, etc., uh, associated with it. Um, people just have a really hard time coping for a long period of time there. Um, in terms of writing this book, can you give us a premise of, or give us the, the um, uh, you know, elevator pitch on, on what's happening within cold people and why we're going to Antarctica? Yeah, so it's the, the book really starts with um, a mass migration to Antarctica. I've got really interested in this idea of um, groups of people being told to move off land and looking at stories about how people are given uh, how people have lived for thousands and thousands of years in one place and then they're told to move and that story you can we can all think of the the different historical examples from around the world and I thought what science fiction can do is take that that real fact of history and that of people's experiences and try and make it true for everyone so I wanted to come up with a premise that would then bring in the whole world and so I used this device of an invasion a, a superior life form invasion um, and that they arrive without any explanation, any justification. There's no prospect of a battle. This is simply like 
we're turning up, you all have to move, you've got 30 days to get this piece of land, it's the worst land for you on the planet, but we don't even, we're going to justify you, but this is it, and so you have this, you know, this scramble across 30 days of the entire population trying to both get down to Antarctica, we're obviously thinking, well, how are we going to survive once we get there, so bringing raw materials down there, and so that's the opening of the book, this is enormous migration, global migration um, uh, down to Antarctica. And then once you get there, well, how do you, you can't leave. This is all we've got. And how do you survive? And right now, currently, that sounds like it could be doable, but actually the bases on Antarctica are restocked every summer. I mean, they're not self-sufficient in any way. They have a, they, they try and, you know, they're very careful with their resources in terms of water use and food and it's all very carefully measured but they're completely restocked in the summer when the ice breaks they arrive they're they're kind of everything's filled up so if you were simply there how would you make life possible for us and there's obviously both keeping warm but then food production and and it you know it was like inventing this entire new um society that would survive that was very interesting and that even with human ingenuity and and a different way of living in terms of resources and in terms of societal structure it's still impossible to survive down there so you have to start looking at more extreme adaptations which is where the idea for engineering genetically engineering people so that they can tolerate the cold that starts as 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 the kind of the way forward the only way to survive and that's the premise in not a nutshell in many nutshells the bag of nutshells it was a, a long elevator right it was like <laughs> you I know was, i was holding the door close button i couldn't get off exactly but that's fine it's um you know that's a great pitch for your book because it really is um it, it really is a um non-stop adventure from beginning to end and uh, you you don't give us that much leeway into the book till we discover, you know, that maybe 20, 30 pages in where we discover everybody's going to have to move to Antarctica. So it isn't a spoiler. Um, what I really got into with your book was your focus on uh, survivability and how do we survive this and what goes on between uh, your character's um, thought processes in terms of how do we survive these very, very difficult times? And other books that you've done as well, Child 44 really exposes and gets deep down into survivor, survivorship as well. And how do we survive? You know, obviously you're very interested in how adaptable humans are and how people are. Um, what was it that in inspires you, A, to write these books about survivorship and B, um, in terms of surviving within cold people, um, what do you think were the most important aspects of, of surviving Antarctica? Well, those are big questions. I mean, it's interesting on, I don't think I'd quite put, maybe weirdly, hadn't quite put it together, but you're right. I mean, Child 44 is about survivability. How do you survive in a society which um, criminalizes open speech, criticism, all the things that are completely natural to us now and we take as um, as rights um, were prohibited under the, you know, under you would be either exiled or you you would face um, execution. And that that isn't, you know, that's an extreme society that, you know, when you really look at what life was like 
feels like so i mean it was interesting when um I was talking to people about adapting Child 44 for a movie. Lots of the references were science fiction. Mm-hmm. There is that sense. I mean, the reason Cold People opens with Antarctica, there are three segments in the past, is because Antarctica used to be science fiction for everyone. It used to be this place where who knows what was down there. It was like there was a kind of dragon on the map or there was a kind of a sense of wonder about it. And I think that's the interesting thing about science fiction is it's this line that keeps moving. and. Um, I'm kind of moving off the topic of survivability, but you know, there's you know, there's a sense that we take things, we take this society that we have now as a kind of a baseline, and to me, um, that seems they seems very kind of there's an instability about it, and I and obviously that can be both very scary, but I think people are have remarkable capacity in the face of um, extreme pressures whether it's courage or whether it's ingenuity, um, tenacity, I think people are at their best under extreme pressures often. Um, and there's a, I mean, I, remember, I hadn't thought about this for a long time, but I remember at school, someone, I can't remember who it was, I think it was a historian turned up to give a talk and he quoted someone about how we were the, uh, at our best during war. And I always thought, because I think obviously war is a terrible thing and we think of, war is something to be avoided, what that meant. And, and then I realized, and you think about it more, about how the sense of bravery and the sense of, you know, when you look at Ukraine right now, people doing this extraordinary battle for a country and their and their rights to exist. And so I guess, you know, there is that sense of, of trying to find a story where you can really explore the extraordinary capacities of people. Um, and I think both the Soviet Union did that in a historical sense in the terms of the people who did protest, the people who did, you know, keep the banned books under their floorboards and would share them. And so that you'd have copies of a book that had been read by hundreds and hundreds of people, or, you know, almost completely dissolving the pages and people would very carefully read them at night and, you know, would make sure that children didn't see them in case they mentioned it to someone at school. I mean, those stories are real and they're kind of amazing. And I think, I I am drawn to those. I think they're, I don't know why on a deeper psychological level I can answer that question, but I think that's exactly true. I think I am interested in people under extreme pressure. I recently, not too long ago, probably a couple of years ago, I read Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson and Seven Eves by, um, uh, Neil Stevenson, and both of those go along of what what would we do if we were, you know, flying across space? How do we how do we survive within these sort of um, strenuous situations? Um, and it, they're fascinating because you're looking into deep space. But what I really liked about Cold People is the fact that you brought in these science fiction elements. Um, and things that we love about science fiction, exploration, uh, survivorship, um, dealing with shortages of food and how do you mathematically handle all of that. Um, But you do it much closer. And one of the things that I really appreciate is the fact that you decided to keep it um, within Earth and not that far from the future Earth, you know, 20, 30 years from now. so in terms of your books, uh, do you think of your books as science fiction or do you think of them more as um, using science fiction elements to help tell your story? 
I mean, I mean, it's clearly science fiction in 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 many in many kind of however criteria you would take. I mean, I find um, uh, here it is about. I was really interested in taking something that exists right now, which is we've talked about survivorship and and about trying to figure out how to survive on Antarctica, but also, you know, in the end, they look to um, genetic engineering and genetic engineering is something that exists now, but which is completely boxed in by ethical red lines. And so it's really interesting that it's one of the few technologies that we have that we're not using and exploring because we have so many qualms about it. And so it was interesting to take a science fiction premise, but actually unlock a technology that exists right now that we're simply, for various reasons, we, we can see as good or you know, whatever the, your position on them is, that we're, we're just, countries are deciding not to use and say, so I didn't have to invent something. I didn't have to say, well, in 40 years time, maybe we'll be able to do genetic engineering. We can do it right now. It's just we're deciding not to. But if you reconfigure the premise, whereas, well, we're going to die out unless we do it, then you could imagine taking the leap that they take in Antarctica in trying to adapt to temperatures that are so extraordinary that unless they do it, the population is going to dwindle to nothing. So there's a sense of, of also, you know, a sense that once you understand that we're not the dominant species, that there's a life higher than us, that we might be less precious about our genetic code. I think there's a sense right now that we see it as, as very special because we're adapting other species um, I listened to a podcast recently about, you know, intensive animal farming and how animals are adapted genetically for um, meat production. And so it's not that we can't do it, it's trying to unlock something that we can do. So that was the technology aspect. And actually on the, the Hulu show that you mentioned, which is um, about the FBI, we're using AI in that to um, work on crime. And AI is, you know, we're at the cusp of something extraordinary there. So it's not is taking stuff that exists right now and just pushing it up and imagining a little bit further, like jumping a little bit ahead. Um, I haven't leapt too. I haven't leapt too far. I haven't created. I don't feel like I created a, 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 a technology or a science that is completely unknown to us. That would be the a distinction, I guess. We know so little about Antarctica. We know so little about our our own oceans. And, uh, you know, there are still parts of, of this world that we still have left to explore. And I think that's as, uh, an exciting time if we can get down there and really dig in deep and understand more about our planet. Um, in terms of uh, your characters, so um, uh, Lisa and Addo have a child uh, that they engineer named Echo. And Echo is one of the genetically modified children to survive, um, help survive within this cold. Um, what was it like creating these characters, building these characters? And you live quite a bit within Echo's head. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about the process of getting deep down into her character. Yeah, I mean, actually, to start off with, I was really taken with the idea of, you know, when you have this big premise, you can, there's a chance to do, to take another story. And, and I was really interested in this idea of the holiday romance that would never have gone anywhere unless this interruption happened. And so, as you mentioned, Lisa and Atto, they meet in Lisbon, and he works as a tour guide on a boat, and she's uh, she's studying medicine in, in the States. and you know, they have this incredible immediate chemistry. 
but they're like, well, our lives are completely separate. I live in, you know, I live in the States, you're in here. Um, it's never going to work. You know, there's this enormous gulf between us. And suddenly the world is reconfigured and that gulf disappears and they're, you know, they're clinging to each other to survive. And so I was really interested in that relationship at the beginning, this idea of this love story that under normal circumstances would never have gone anywhere because they just would have been too reasonable and rational and they just would have said, you know, the gap is too big. So I collapsed the gap at the beginning, which makes, you know, the start of that story then is very romantic to me. I'm like, you know, alien invasion happens and it's obviously devastating, but in a strange way enables these two people who are kind of perfect for each other to accept that. And, and all of the things that seem like barriers between them, language, education, socioeconomic background disappear in an instant. They're all irrelevant. And so that to me was the starting point for those two. And then I was like, they get there and they, um, they're in the situation. They, it's an extraordinary feat just to survive. So they go through that and there are all kinds of losses on the way and, and all kinds of sacrifices and they get to Antarctica and then there's a the question of what do they survive for and he's surviving for her he's you know his that love for her there's a sense of that but she, there's a sense of what you know what is the point of surviving and so this child um uh in, in the end they, they try for children and and, and you know it is so dangerous there that it you know the, the mortality rate is very high so Several they lose several children, and finally, the child that they can have together survives because it's genetically adapted for the cold. And so, to them, it's the most wondrous child. I mean, it's like this thing to you know, it, it rejuvenates both of them. They can now put up with the you know the conditions. They are now, um, it, you know, it kind of reaffirms their sense of of life and love. And she, of course, as um, someone who is adapted, is this sense of being different which is something we all relate to, I think, on some level. And, and that sense of trying to find your connection in a world that is both built for you, but which you're you know, other to the other people. So in some ways, she's much more suited to Antarctica as a place. But in terms of Antarctica, it doesn't have a people. The people that are there are fragile and frail. And she's built for the, the continent, but she doesn't have a people. And so that was the interesting mix, you know, is this sense of, of love. And I just became really interested in that as a triangle, which is um, at the sort of heart of, of the story of um, her trying to figure out whether she is wed to this continent or to this, or to her parents and, and whether she's something completely other and should therefore, you know, form stronger attachments with these new cold people, the people that are adapted and you leave behind um, the people that are kind of frail, like, like ourselves. And there's that sense of, is she on the cusp of, of this group or that group? What, what group does she belong to? Which people does she belong to? And furthermore, I mean, there are improvements, so to speak, as time goes on with how you genetically modify these people. And so uh, you, throw, you throw another hammer kind of into, or a wrench into the the plans with uh, another character by the name of Aiton or Aiton. Um, I could never. However you like. I yeah. Never... yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to give too much of him away, but he was a really interesting character as well because he is yet again something slightly more removed. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think, and this is a, a facetious kind of flippant analogy, 
But there is that sense with um, any kind of discovery that it's very hard once you open it to, to pull back. Like at what point do you stop adapting? Like if you make a small adaption to the cold and then you're like, well, that was successful. I should make another. You know, you continue and continue. And at what point have you have you moved that person into being something completely other? And at what point are they still fundamentally human? At what point have they become something new? Um, and I was really interested in that, but it's a very hard thing to stop. I mean, the analogy I was going to give is I think something with, you know, cosmetic surgery, people do a little bit and then they become completely addicted to it. Like it becomes very compulsive. And I think that's what happens with the act of discovery. You keep changing. There's this element, once you start, it kind of impossible to stop. And, you know, if your goal is to produce um, the perfect person for this continent, and this continent is all we have, why would you stop at a small incremental change? You know, this notion that somehow they need to stay in touch with who we are, is that the goal or is the goal to make the perfect person to survive in this continent, in which case you'd carry on and carry on until, until you reach this, um, you reach someone that seems completely other. And um, that's the tension that's going on in the piece, this desire to create a, a perfect person for Antarctica, or do you try to hold on to what is special about people or what we would think might be special? And one of the things that we're thinking about that is special is our affection and our compassion and our sensitivities. I mean, that's one of the things I was really interested in, which is some of the things that are our frailties. And one of the things that came to embody that is our skin, which is useless in the cold. I mean, it's really, yes, rubbish, um, both in terms of how much heat you lose through your skin, which is an enormous amount, but, you know, even if you put on heavy furs, I'm sure people have done this, they've put on big jackets and they've, they've gone outside and it's been cold for an hour and then they've warmed up and you have to take them off again because you kind of start sweating. And then the sweat, you know, it's like our bodies are not great at dealing with those extreme temperatures. But the skin, you know, this as an as a kind of working as a metaphor, um, this idea of having thin skin. But I think there's something kind of great about people having thin skin, that we are acutely sensitive to each other's moods and our needs, and that we're not just indifferent to things, that we don't just walk by. Um, and, you know, even, you know, I mean, this is something that I, everyone in cities around the world obviously experience, but that, you know, it's very cold right now in New York. And there's a, um, there's a subway then just up the street from me. And Sometimes you'll walk past it and there's someone sitting on it to keep warm. And it's just hard to, you know, to know how to feel at that point. You don't just walk past and read, you don't kind of shut it out. You feel something, which is this feels wrong somehow. I don't know what to do, but it's not indifference. You don't just kind of not see it and kind of move past. And I think that's something I was interested in, that our sensitivities and our vulnerabilities are assets as well as flaws. Um, exactly. Yeah. One of the things I was really impressed with was you're talking about how, how do we survive on Antarctica? And one of the main things, of course, we talk about is food. And so you were you went in pretty heavily on on the fact that we move into eating more algaes, we move into eating more seafoods and doing a lot of processing of those, you know, cellular byproducts. And that's something that's commonly talked about in, in science fiction, especially using algae as a, a synthetic protein or a, a, a substance that we could create protein with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I came up with a whole alternate cooking book. It was really, I mean, that, I mean, 
Lots of writing is really fun. And one of the fun elements here was really thinking about the diet. And yeah. I mean, lots of, there's lots of an element of this, you know, when you hear the premise, it sounds, and I think they, you know, it's kind of, it automatically gets put under dystopian, but there were lots of things about this migration to Antarctica and about trying to figure out how to survive that I actually found quite kind of uh, inspiring. And one of the things is how do you, how do you reconfigure a diet for everyone to keep everyone healthy? Like that is your only priority, not making money or sugar rushes or anything like that. It's about purely like, how do we keep people alive? And so you're looking at trying to figure out where to get all your minerals and your protein. And it was like trying to draw on it and it has to be sustainable. And, you know, so I started researching, you know, kelp, which is this incredible plant, very good for you. And it's like one of the fastest growing plants. So there are these giant kelp farms under the ice that they're farming. Um, they create these enormous, as you say, these algae, almost like giant Petri dishes on the ice. And obviously there's no greenery and there's not a single tree in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a, there's a small kind of um, moment in the book where I talk about the only tree in Antarctica, which was brought down during this, this exodus, this mass migration and people go there and then you have to like book half an hour with your date to sit around the one tree that's in like a, a fishing, can, uh, a kind of oil container. And, and that's the only tree in Antarctica, but they have these giant Petri dishes with algae which is this kind of incredible green color. And then suddenly you realize that people have gone for years without seeing green. So like people come to these algae farms just to look at the color green because it's so extraordinary. So things like that become really interesting when you start imagining them. Um, and they were very fun to kind of just think about. That's one of the things that I really love about cold people is that it's essentially this giant thought experiment. What happens? What happens when? What happens if? Um, and without, um, I've got to say, this is a very fast reading book for those who are, maybe I'm, I'm saying, well, it's a thought experiment. No, it's, it's a nonstop thriller as well. Um, over time, um, you are primarily a historical and a thriller writer. And also being a screenplay writer, you've really learned how to pace your books, so what did you have to do to make sure that cold people worked as much as a thriller as it is a uh, one science fiction novel as you know i guess what did what have you learned over the years to really keep up that pacing well you know i mean i think um there's no one way to slice a story so i remember there was a midway point of writing the the novel which was it is because of the multiple natures of the, the subject matter that need lots of research. Um, there was a moment, I think, when I, um, I emailed my agent and said this book might be 200,000 words, might be 250,000 words, which is twice the length, three times the length of the book as it is. Because in a sense, you could write forever. I mean, there are entire books on glaciers that really, you know, deep scientific studies of how they move and there's so much that you could dig into in terms of society structure. You could do a political story about how there was, how that, how society, you know, the, all the different rivalries, that kind of question. There were so many options and it felt like it would become almost nebulous. It would be almost like trying to describe, um, you know, write a book about America today, write a book about Europe, 
today it becomes like well where do you start what is it how do you what's the through line that isn't really how people engage like people follow a story or they follow a very particular subject and so I I kind of knew that I had to shape it otherwise it would just become in a sense as you say like a kind of let me just create a, a book about a, a, a fictional society and you know in a, it, it would be almost a bizarre experiment in writing where it'd be like chapter one would be the society of antarctica chapter two would be the food of antarctica and then you'd think well you've made it all up anyway so it's like it's, it becomes you know there's a strange sense of structuring like that it, well tolkien's histories i mean he really wrote down the history of middle earth i mean it could be but i don't think that's a very engaging read <laughs> although tolkien tolkien ologists would disagree with me well, I think you. I think what is the greater thing about that is then you then tell a story out of it. I mean, yeah. the Hobbit is a Hobbit is a fast read. I was. I remember when I read it for the the first time, and obviously it's much shorter than Lord of the Rings. But I mean, you race through. Right. So you create, in a sense, I think that's interesting with research. I think what it is is, you know, you might have. I think there's this. I remember talking to my um, UK editor about this actually. That the reader is very good at sensing if you don't know all the facts around the fact that you put in, mm -hmm. um, but they don't necessarily want all the facts around the fact that you put in. They want to feel like you have a broad canvas of understanding of what this world is and that then you're giving them a slither of it. Um, and so there was, for, for example, I mean, I think this is true for all of the books. Child 44 had lots of research that I then edited out because lots of things were completely fascinating but they didn't move the story forward and they became almost like a footnote and footnotes are interesting i mean i sometimes read them sometimes but you know i think that they, they, they have a different role in fiction whereas i feel like you want to feel like the footnotes are invisible but they will be there if you ask me a question about them i could probably talk about i hope i could talk about them anyway absolutely now would you ever want to actually go yourself to antarctica now after doing all this research yeah, I booked it. It was all booked. I was going to go, and the pandemic struck. It was it was that it was that year. It was uh, booked for the January, I think, and um, it was everything was on. You know, was looked. I think it was yeah, whatever that that, that year the pandemic struck. The lockdown was in March. In so I think it was that yeah, and I, I postponed it, and then we were in lockdowns, lockdowns, lockdowns. And then when I came out of, when we came out of them, I had to shoot this show in Atlanta. Um, and COVID was, you know, we were on very strict COVID regimes in Atlanta. So it was still, the pandemic was still kind of with us. Um, so I haven't had the chance yet. So this is the first time actually I've written a book because normally I would do it in the earlier stages. I would go and I had been to Russia several times before I wrote Child 44 and then I went again. Um, and then the farm is set in Sweden, which I've been to many, many, many times. So this is the first time I hadn't been before writing. And now in my head, it's interesting to go afterwards. It's, it would be a very, very different experience. I'm, and in some ways, um, yeah, it's, so I haven't quite processed it as a, as a post book thing. But my, so it turns out Shackleton went to my school uh, in London. And so my school has a very proud, I really, digest this as a child because you know you miss so much but my school has this kind of proud association with Antarctica and they have a society called the James Card Society which is the name of his boat I think and they go to Antarctica so um 
maybe I'll go with my, you know, maybe I'll go with a group and we'll go down and we'll do that at some point. But it will be a very different process to going in advance. Our store owners actually plan to go this coming fall. So she's very excited about that. She wanted to mention that, you know, she's excited about it. And one of the things she really liked about cold people is the fact that you really give a kind of a sense of of place before she actually got the chance to go. So uh, oh, that's cool. really yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um what I always like to open our um, conversations up with the audience. And on YouTube, uh, Bruce Borgo says, the premise of this book suggests a dark time for humans, a literal struggle for our survival. Do you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist about our future? I think this book is uh, very optimistic in the sense that, I mean, we've touched on this already in the sense that, you know, as the premise sounds, it's extreme. It puts us under extreme pressure. But as I mentioned before, I think we come up with some of our greatest moments under those pressures, both in terms of emotional connections, in terms of acts of bravery and courage, but also ingenuity. And I happen to find all of the, you know, both the, the building of the society down there, I found very interesting and um, optimistic. I mean, you have to come up with a different way of managing resources. You have to look after each other better. Um, you know, because surviving is so tricky, um, the sense of community is much stronger. Um, there were lots of things about that society and about the, the towns that exist on the peninsula that I found. And, you know, the, we, the, the way the society is, you, you kind of live in the most survivable places, which are the peninsula, which kind of stretches off the body of ice. McMurdo, because that's already established now that there's lots of structures to be built on. McMurdo is a place of science and invention. And that's where all of the kind of thinking goes on. And then there are different kind of almost ecosystems of people doing different things. There's music, there's sport, you know, the things that we love have a way of coming back into the society. There's a, there's a kind of, you know, whether it's a kind of soccer on ice or whether it's sculpting ice for art galleries or whether it's, you know, composing new kinds of music. Um, and even, you know, even one of the towns, everything that start, starts off with being very functional. And there's a sense that we can't just have all our structures be functional. We have to build one structure at least that is an expression of our um, architecture and design. And so all of those things kind of come back in that despite that pressure, people still feel the need to express themselves creatively. Um, and then obviously they take this enormous leap with genetic engineering that I actually found, I have to say, quite exciting. I didn't find it, um, I didn't find it bleak in the way that it's not a warning about it, I don't think. No. So, yeah. I I never felt like your book was a warning in terms of like, you know how um Michael Crichton would always come up with something and it would be the uh, an ecological disaster. You know, Jurassic Park, of course, is probably his most primate and most famous example. But your book really isn't. It really is about people coming together and figuring how to make the most out of a really, really bad situation. <clears throat> um, and they're all, even your villains have a certain amount of likability to them um and an understanding behind them 
Yeah, I never see them as villains. I mean, this is like Jurassic Park with people, but I like the people that, you know, you know, <laughs> I like the people that escape the park. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I just, yeah, I find it very hard to write about anyone that I don't like. And there's actually two sides to that, both, um, and like is a funny word, but have some interest in that I find really intriguing because I think, um, I think there's a there's a power there's obviously a power in writing which is I have control of all the words I can control how people seem and so it feels very unfair to set up a character and mock them or ridicule them to try and make another character or myself seem bigger so there's almost like intrinsically a sense of you want a balance you want to see it from their point of view you feel like you're responsible for them in some way and that does kind of automatically change your approach to writing. And I think some of the most intriguing villains are, um, well, I mean, I, I put it another way in, um, you know, in the, the Hulu piece, Brian Tyree Henry, who's just been nominated for Oscar is, is our lead. And if you put him up against a boring villain, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a kind of empty victory. And actually what really is exciting is him up against someone who is fascinating because it raises his level of interest. The hero becomes more interesting. And so intrinsically, that's what I'm kind of doing across the whole story is trying to make everyone as interesting as possible. And to do that, you have to really dig in and, and try and give them depth, even if you completely disagree with the things that they're saying or articulating or trying to do. When you're writing a novel versus writing a screenplay, it's very different. Screenplays tend to be very um, community-based in terms of as you're writing, um, whereas novels become community-based after you've written. Um, do you have a preference in terms of, or do you feel like both are really an important part of you being a writer? I mean, I think your summary is 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 spot on in the sense that there are enormous numbers of people involved in screenplays even before they you know go into production there's teams of people reading them and giving thoughts and books you can disappear off for two years three years and not see a soul um so it's just you and you can involve and editors are often happy to read at different stages so it's not that you don't have to involve people but I think there's even a reluctance to give too much feedback until you get to the end I think that's a, probably a wise approach anyway right. because that doesn't exist with screenplays like you write the first thing and like all this feedback comes in straight away but one of the interests so there's certainly true in a practical number of people involved way but one of the things I think and I've only kind of realized this recently is that in some ways you have to write the this is for original screenplays or original limited series you sort of have to write the book to write the um to write the screenplay because with screenplays you're whittling it down you're trying to find different approaches but you do again need to know everything and actors will come to you and they'll want to know even though they might have 10 pages in a 60 page script they want to know their full backstory they want to know the world around them they know where they came from they want to know all of the stuff that you would put in a book and you could do quite quickly as a texture, they want that. And you have to provide that. So in a sense, there's um, there's a, I, I'm now kind of leaning towards the, the fact that in some ways I might 
it's almost easier to, to work it out as a story, a complete world, and then decide whether you want to adapt it rather than trying to figure it out through screenplays and then having to almost broaden out to a book that isn't written, but you end up writing Bibles and you end up writing character, these character studies that are separate to the, the screenplay itself. And as I said, you know, the, the, the example of that was um, uh, The Assassination of Johnny Versace, where I had Maureen's book, and then I just got every other book on, um, there weren't that many actually on, on, the, on the case and on Versace, and I just read them all. But then I had all the books on my table when I was working out the screenplays. And when you're writing an original screenplay, you don't have those books on your table. You have to sort of try and make them. And, and so in some ways, I think creatively, um, it feels like the book should come first, even if it's not a book. It feels like you need the book before you write the screenplay. And again, I mean, survivability, I think of, you know, how did this Versace family, for instance, survive through some, a gruesome murder? And then you also did the Monica Lewinsky um, Clinton story, didn't you, as well? That's American crime story. They were like, a, it's an anthology series. So the first yeah. OJ which I had nothing to do with. And then I did Versace and then um, um, the Monica was series three, but I had nothing to do with that, no. I think gotcha. that was based on a book as well though, but that was, um, I forgot the name of the writer, she's called Sarah, I can't remember her name, sorry. So one of the things that uh, is exciting, you said you've got this new Hulu series. Is there anything that you can mention about um, Summer of 09 uh, to us? Last can you learn a little bit? Uh, Class of 09, sorry. Yeah, I can. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, about the FBI. And again, it's like interesting. Um, I was listening to podcasts. They're called, uh, I think it's called FBI Retired Case Files. And it's by a retired FBI agent called Jerry Williams. And she was in the FBI and now she interviews retired FBI agents. And they talk about their, a case. Mm -hmm. These podcasts are long. They're like an hour, 20 minutes. And I was listening to him thinking, oh, wow, FBI agents are really interesting. They're really interesting storytellers. It was really, um, they were very different in my listening to, I mean, she's done, I think, 200, I don't know how many, there's many, lots of them. And um, I thought, how can we capture how idiosyncratic and unusual the agents are? it's so often the case is bigger than the agent. It's so often the crime is bigger than the agent. And I thought that isn't right. Like listening to these, these people were extraordinary and, and odd and unusual and completely different. I mean, like they had different storytelling. Some people were great at minutiae. Some people had a real flair for drama. Some people were very matter of fact. Some people were bitter. Some people were full of optimism, you know, the, the full range. And I thought, oh, that's not often how they're represented on TV. They come across a little bit cipherish and secondary to the crime. And I was like, can we come up with a story where the agent is the, is the, those characters are the biggest in the, in the piece. And so it's um, following a class of FBI trainees from Quantico into the present. So 10 years later, when you're looking at their, what they've achieved in present day, which is now 2023, and then in the future as well, the near future, so 10 years. So you're following this class through three timelines, past, present, and future. And so you're seeing them and you're seeing their dreams, you're seeing what they hoped they would achieve, what they did achieve. You know, you're contrasting those three things. And that came out of the fact that I loved 
I'm, and I don't know why I love them, but I find class photos really interesting. And it doesn't, I don't need to be in the class, like anyone's mm. class photo. I just find the way people stand, the way they position themselves. Yeah. I think you can see a lot of their aspirations. And then you could just put it down, any class photo, and ask someone, well, what happened to this person? What happened to this person? And Jerry has the center. Jerry has, Jerry Williams has this um, class photo, which he sent to me. And uh, FBI classes are quite big. And uh, we, we shrunk class for the show because it was just too big. But in reality, they're like 40 people. And the stories are amazing. This person married this person. This person ended up you know, suffering this terrible injury. This person was a hero. This person didn't amount to everything they thought they would. And it was completely compelling. And I thought, how do I capture some of that in this show? Like, you're gonna, how would you follow this class, class through the show? And, yeah, so it's Brian Tyree Henry is one. Um, uh, Kate Mara is another in the lead. We have um, uh, John John, who is from, who is the dad from Versace. So he's Kunana's dad. He's one of the trainer. Yeah, he's one of the instructors at Quantico. Um, it's an extraordinary cast, and um, it's just about them. It's you know the cases are secondary. It's about their dreams and their hopes for the FBI and their hope fundamentally of trying to change the bureau in some way. That's that's the premise of it. It's exciting. It really is. And Cool People really is an incredibly exciting book as well. Do you think you're going to follow up in that same universe? Well, my next book is, I'm already over halfway through it, and it is a love story and it's completely different. So right now I can safely say the next book will not be um, a follow-up. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I you know, I was lucky with, with Child 44 because I was given the history. So in a sense, I didn't have to think what happens next. I just opened the next set of history books, which are so, because the nature of that regime was so contrasting, Stalin fell, you were in Khrushchev's era, and then you were at the fall of the Soviet Union. So you sort of naturally had a trilogy. You didn't have to kind of come up with plot continuations. It was kind of easy to set a life across that regime. Um, but I love the feeling of, as I said, going into that bookstore and buying 10 books and, and that moment of discovery and working it out. And so that to me is really important. And there's obviously moments where you, you think, what am I doing? This is, this is crazy. And then you find yourself. And I, I would need to have that same level of spark to do a, to a continuation of this book. So we'll see. It's, it's an unknown unknown thing at this point in time you never know i i hope to revisit this world at some point because you you don't leave it completely shuttered when you when you finish this book you do leave it open for the possibility of a return would yeah. you see it on television perhaps or as a film i well, i mean it will be very expensive and you know we we shoot more in the hulu series we shoot um montana i shouldn't say this is all on a, but we shoot Montana in Atlanta and we use um, digital snow. So I know how much digital snow costs. <laughs> so having done that, I'm like, okay, this would be a really, really, really expensive piece to make. And I also think it's one of those ones where um, it's science fiction has changed now. It used to be, you know, when I was growing up, we would take visualizations much less literally you know, Star Trek, for example, didn't have to have, it was much more theatrical. It would have really basic creatures and golf the ideas, but now everything has to be photorealistic. And the problem with photorealism is it's so expensive. So it means that you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars and that's the only way to do it. So in some ways there's no, there's no 
experimental ground that they used to exist, I think, in the 60s and 70s, particular, in particular, where people wouldn't mind those kind of costumes, or slight, things being slightly odd, they would just go with the story. But I think that's gone now. So I think um, it, would, it would require a huge investment from someone. So we'll see. It would be it would be a very expensive show. I think uh, it would be kind of the Last of Us, um, Game of Thrones sort of level sort of shots in order to to successfully pull it off. But I I think it would translate beautifully as a film or as a a television series. Yeah, it could do. Yeah, I think it would take it would take a great visionary to you know just the mechanics of bringing that world to life and. Um, you know, I mean, it could be, it could be something special. I mean, it isn't amazing, it's, you know, just, you know, watching any documentary or picking up any of the Antarctica books, the, the landscape is really extraordinary and, and completely hypnotic. Um, so it would be interesting to see a story that isn't just an expedition in that, in that, in that landscape, to see a story that is a narrative there. You know, it was interesting in 2020, one of our top selling um, books was a history of a biography of Shackleton that we actually imported in from the UK because, of course, we don't get in a lot of books. Um, Did you uh, lose me? Oh, no. I can see you. Can you see me? Yeah, something just popped up. It just said. <laughs> my Zoom. <laughs> I was going to say one of our top selling biographies was a, a book on Shackleton uh, year, in 2020. And it seemed like people were really if they didn't get the chance to go to Antarctica or to go on vacation, they were going to, they're going to go there via book. And uh, I think cold people, um, this book, Tom, is just such, it's worth your time and your attention. Um, for those who love great characters, who love great setting, who love great plot, I mean, you really have it all. And I really, in the two days that it took me to finish this book cover to cover, I enjoyed myself completely. It was such a great um, adventure and just uh, a really great time. So I, I would really recommend uh, for those of you who are out there to go out and buy Tom's book. It's the first week. Thank uh, you. That's very kind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and hopefully you buy it from the Poison Pen if you liked our program today. If not, buying it anywhere, buying it at any bookstore is a great way to support Tom and say that you want more books, books coming out from him. So this is an important week, guys. So we really appreciate it. Um, Tom, congratulations on uh, a beautiful book. And uh, hopefully uh, when it isn't a Super Bowl week here in Phoenix and prices are outrageous to come and visit, uh, you'll be able to come in and see us for the next book. I would love that. Excellent. If you need any good words, Otto on uh, over at the Mysterious Bookshop in in uh, Manhattan can say a few good words about us. Yeah, I know. I know, I know, <laughs> I know that bookstore. I've been there. I know. Yeah. Nice. Well, you know, so mystery bookstores were a small world. We're, uh, we're good friends all around. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy your evening. Folks, thank you so much for spending your time. Um, and uh, congratulations, Tom, again on the book. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. All right. To our, our Facebook friends, have a great night. And to our YouTube friends as well.
Excellent. And we are ending stream. Tom, thank you so much again. I hope that was an okay job. Really great. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking about it. So you really you it's a great book. We've sold a lot. We actually sold out of your UK. So you signed for um over at Goldsboro's and they sent us a bunch of copies. So we've actually sold out of the UK and we're um about halfway through the Americans. So great. I love the cover. It's beautiful, isn't it? They did a great it job. Is. Yeah. We're one of the larger British book importers in the United States. And so yeah, which is kind of funny. Uh but because mystery books come out sometimes a year early and, and other things and um really you you just knock this out of the park and hopefully when you're actually on a book tour and you're willing to go through sleep deprivation uh i hope you'll be willing to come and visit us yeah well of course you'll be it'll be my pleasure excellent well enjoy your night thank you so much Tom. thank you for hosting me thank you you're very welcome have a good evening you too bye-bye bye-bye hello we hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.